Hey, grace and peace to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first time this has ever happened to me. I had two uh, teachings for you guys, and I didn't know which one to do. And uh, the, uh, the first one was just a, as, a, as Ed Allen would call it if he were to write a, a book about it, a slow walk through Joshua 5. By the way, uh, Ed Allen here, where are you? Raise your hand. There he is. He writes devotional Bible studies. So uh, if you guys want to like get some friends together and do a Bible study, that's a resource you could use. Go on Amazon or whatever, talk to him, find his books. They're always called like a slow walk through this or that. And anyway, I was going to take you through Joshua 5. I just was looking at it and I was so excited about everything in there. It was about, as John Dockendorf said, stepping over the threshold into the promises that God has for you. But then again, I had this other teaching, uh, which is about the sacrificial love of the sacrificial love that it's from Christ and that we're called to be a part of. And I was like, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I went back and forth throughout the week. Even this morning, I was going back and forth until Dolores, woman of God over here, I went and talked with her and she asked me, what is love? I'm like, thank you, Dolores. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, what is love? That's what we're going to be talking about. So that's what we're doing. We're going to be talking about sacrificial love. We're going to be talking about what is love really. And, um, and then next week, this is also good because Tony told me this one ties in more with where he's going. We're going to finish off um, the book of John next week, Pastor Tony, and uh, that'll be really exciting. So anyway, um, another reason, I was actually a little hesitant about choosing this one, not because of the topic, because it's a beautiful, biblical, important topic, and God called me to it, but I was nervous because it's a different sort of presentation than I've done before. Um, this is actually, I'm translating a parable to you. So when I was in Guatemala, we needed uh, translators to translate my English to Spanish or vice versa. Anyway, in the late 1800s, there was a novelist and a pastor named George MacDonald. And um, he wrote uh, a lot of stories, and he was really big on the parable. So his story, he was a pastor, like I said. His stories are super deep and they're really fun. Um, but if you look really hard, he's actually preaching the gospel in some really creative way. And so he laid out this sermon that I'm giving to you today. So we're going to be going through his story. And I just want to make it clear, we're not basing our understanding of, of a word today from a story. It's off the word of God. But this pastor, he just put it in a parable, and so we're going to break it down. So if you're interested in checking out the book, it was from the 1800s. This one is called Fantasties, um, right there, spelt really weird. And um, we're going to be talking about just chapter 13, and that's going to lay out this message of sacrificial love. So this sacrificial love message, let me, just in case you don't like my presentation or you're bored and you want to leave, I'm just going to sum it all up right now so at least you get the message. And then we'll, we'll, we'll break it down slowly over time. But this is a message about how Christ's love for us is real love. He loves you so much that he would sacrifice himself on the cross. He's on the cross because of our sins, and yet he's, not he's thinking about us on the cross, but he's not blaming us He's saying, you, I'm doing this for you. Armani, it's for you. And Aaron, Aaron, this is for you. He's like, I love you, and I don't want you to go to hell. I don't want your life to be a living hell. I love you so much, I will do whatever it takes, and I want to bring you into wholeness, into forgiveness. This is this sort of love. But then he calls us to live this sort of 
love out in our lives, which if we don't have an opportunity for martyrdom, it can be portrayed in any way that we lift others up. We don't let anything get between us, any offenses. We're going to love with sacrificial love. We're going to die to ourselves and love them. And the way we see in Scripture this happens is, first of all, he gives us revelation of himself as we have relationship with him. And then we open up the word of God and the word of God transforms us and we get the eyes of heaven. And when we get the eyes of heaven, everything looks completely different. And we see, we see with the eyes of heaven how much we are loved and we see how valuable everybody else is. And then we are then given the ability to grow in sacrificial love, which is true love. So this is the message you've heard. You can go home or you can stay and listen to the rest of it because we're just going to repeat that over and over again with, uh, with a fantasy story from the 1800s, chapter 13 of Fantasties. So let me go ahead and give you the synopsis of the whole story, and then we'll start breaking it down and looking at Scripture and everything um, and getting back to the point that we just made. So it's chapter 13 of this book is this where this whole story takes place, it's about this guy named Cosmo. And he buys this very unique mirror from an antiquity store. At home, every night, a beautiful woman appears in the mirror. She doesn't seem to be aware of him. He falls in love with her over time. He tries to bring her into his real life through unholy means, namely magic. She does, not appear, or she does appear, but not because of the magic, rather because of his longing. She was aware of him after all the whole time, he didn't realize it. She asks him to break the mirror and set her free. He is reluctant because he feels that if the mirror is broken, like he doesn't know if he'll ever see her again, he's not willing to take that risk. Um, and because he used magic and because he delayed in breaking the mirror, the demons behind the dark art makes the mirror disappear and the woman vanishes and all that stuff. And he realizes what he lost and he realizes at that moment what true love was. He did not actually have true love for her, he had a sort of selfish thing instead. He wanted to make sure that she was always there and he could at least watch her and he, he didn't truly love her. So he determines to find the mirror um, and destroy it no matter what. So everywhere he goes at that point, he carries a hammer and uh, he eventually discovers an old college. Mate of his has the mirror. He's a swordsman like he is, a fencer, only he's like his equal. He's really good. He doesn't want to give up the mirror blah, blah, blah. Oh, he gets wounded. Uh, he, he succeeds in destroying the mirror, um, but he's mortally wounded. Um, and, uh, but he does have the pleasure of seeing the young woman one last time before he dies, and that's the end of the story. And, and, and you might be thinking, what in the world does that have to do with all that stuff you said right in the beginning. Well, I'm, I'm going to show you, and we're going to really dig into the Word, and we're going to get this. And then next week, when we hit the end of the Gospel of John, it's just hopefully going to all tie together real nicely. So um, like uh, every chapter in this book, Fantasties, he starts it off with a quote or two from random old sources. And the first quote that he uses, oh, each of these quotes relate to the following chapter. So the first quote he uses is from an old ballad. It doesn't say who wrote it. And it goes, I saw a ship sailing upon the sea, deeply laden as ship could be, but not so deep as in love I am, for I care not whether I sink or swim. And this right here is the whole point of the message that Pastor George McDonald and Pastor Aaron Heinle is going to try to get across to you today, that true love 
cares not whether you sink or swim, which we're going to see at the end of the story as he's mortally wounded and happy that he's finally able to truly love the way Jesus loves. And John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love that we are called to. So then the second quote before the story even starts is, but love is such a mystery, I cannot find it out. For when I think I'm best resolved, I then am in most doubt. And that's a poem by a guy named Sir John Suckling. And this is reflected in the black moment of the story where he's, he doesn't break the mirror because he thinks that he loves her too much. And so he doesn't break the mirror. But after he hesitates and she disappears, only then does he realize what love is. So love, what is love? Love is a very confusing uh, phenomenon in this world, and we're always trying to figure out exactly what it is and what it looks like. And in our modern age, it's especially that way because, you know, people... Um, they're trying to get in relationships. Oh, do I love them? Do I say I love you? Is this really love? And then if you get in a relationship, and especially if you're married, if you're like, well, what does love look like? What does love demand of that person? What does love demand of me? And it's very mysterious. But most mysterious of all is why it even exists. This strange thing, why does it exist? And the Bible gives us the answers to all of those questions of what is love, and we have to really understand what is love. We can't just go by the world's definition of what is love because that is super confusing, and it changes all the time. And if you've ever tried to live by the world's standards of what love is, you just realize it's a big emotional mess, and it's very sloppy. Um, actually, God's love is, is even more sloppy, but at least you know what it is. So anyway, Ephesians 5, 31 through 32 tells us the purpose of love, why it even exists. It says, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So all human love is just a metaphor. It's not even the real thing. God gave us human love to show us, to give us a small little taste of what real love is, about what the love of Christ is. It says not that Jesus' love is like a man and a woman falling in love. It doesn't say that. It says the opposite. It says that love exists to be an illustration of the ultimate love, the one real love, the, the love that we really need above all else, and that is the love of Christ. And we get to experience the joys of natural love, knowing that it is just a little piece, a little dull reflection of the real thing that is available to you, available to us in Christ. All love points to Christ. And then, what is the love of Christ? We actually see it uh, like a verse earlier or something, I think, where it says that Christ laid down his life for the church. And this is what true love is. So if you're wondering whether you are in love or not, are you willing to lay your life down for that person? Are, do you love your neighbor? Well, are you willing to lay your life down for that person? And of course, that translates, as I said earlier, beyond life and death. It's 
It's everything. If you're willing to lay your life down for them, then you're willing to put up with their jerkiness or their sin. Or, uh, you're willing to, to love them. You're willing to lift them up and encourage them or lower yourself. That's, that's what it looks like. So if you're wondering what love is, that's what it is right there. Now, interestingly, this story, Fantasties, the novel itself, is not about this character named Cosmo, who is the star of chapter 13. Um, it's about some other guy who, at the end of chapter 12, he finds a book about Cosmo, and he opens it up and he reads it. And so all of chapter 13 is this book about Cosmo that we're going to be looking at and um, understanding the scripture through. And so here's how it starts. Um, of course, while I read it, the, this guy who's reading this book about Cosmo, it says, I was Cosmo, and his history was mine. Yet all the time, I seemed to have a kind of double consciousness and the story a double meaning. Sometimes it seemed only to represent a simple story of ordinary love, perhaps almost universal love, wherein two souls loving each other and longing to come nearer do, after all, but behold each other as in a glass darkly. So here in this paragraph, he's saying, you are invited to become Cosmo and to feel what he feels and experience the double meaning. And he gives us a hint what the double meaning is there because he uses the biblical phrase, through a glass darkly. Uh, and understand, come into the story and understand what the love of Christ looks like that only natural love mimics as in a glass darkly. So then we're introduced to this character, Cosmo. Cosmo von Werstall was a student at the University of Prague. Though of noble family, he was poor and prided himself upon the independence that poverty gives. For what will not a man pride himself upon when he cannot get rid of it? I like that sentence. Human nature. We're all looking for something to take pride in, but we misplace it, of course. We pride ourselves in ourselves. Um, anything that we can, which is just our nature. But of course, the opposite is sacrificial love. Jeremiah 9, 24 says, but those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. You can boast in his love, his love, that you know it. That's something that you can boast in, by the way. If you guys feel lonely, if you guys feel no love for yourself, if you feel no love for anybody else, if you are wondering where all the love is in this world, well, you can get plugged right into it because he is the one who demonstrates unfailing love. Plug into that. Plug into the unfailing love. So we find out more about Cosmo as we go through the pages. We find out that he is a good student, but he's a little weird. He's a little quiet. And he likes to keep to himself and dabble in weird stuff other than his school materials. It says these studies, besides those subjects necessary to his course at the university, embrace some less commonly known and approved, for in a secret drawer lay the works of Albertus Magnus and Cornelius Agrippa, along with others less read and more abstruse. As yet, however... He had followed these researches only from curiosity and had turned them to no practical purpose. So you probably don't know who those authors are. I looked them up. It's weird metaphysical stuff, screwy theology, and witchcraft. So this is the stuff that he thought was interesting and he was studying it. And that's going to be important to our understanding of the scripture, uh, what this metaphor means in just a little bit. So we learn that in his house are all sorts of weird things. There's a skeleton, there's a taxidermy bat, and there's all sorts of medieval weapons. 
um, and that he doesn't like to have anybody over. It says, his mind had never yet been filled with an absorbing passion, but it lay like a still twilight open to any wind, whether the low breath that wafts but odors or the storm that blows the great trees till they strain and creak. Like, he, he doesn't know what to be passionate yet. He's, he's ready, though. He's open. He's like, somebody come and move me. I'll take the littlest thing or the big thing. Somebody stir my passion. He's open to this. And by the way, especially if you don't know the Lord, you know, that's a great place to be. Just be open to receive. Be on the hunt. Be looking out for the truth. Um, and then it says this, but this could hardly last long. Some one form must sooner or later step within the charmed circle, enter the house of life, and compel the bewildered musician to kneel and worship. We were made to worship, and those who seek, find. And that sentence also gives us a hint as to what the house represents in the metaphor. It calls it the house of life. So this house and the stuff in it represents his life. It's his soul. And so looking at this house, we see that his life is full of curiosity, but also of darkness. And the next thing that happens is some school buddy asks him to help him appraise a suit of armor that he finds at this antiquities place, the store. So Cosmo does so. The armor is satisfactory. The guy buys it. Um, but as they're leaving, Cosmo's eye is attracted to a dusty old elliptical mirror with fancy engravings around the edge. And it says, it was this carving that attracted his attention, at least so it appeared to him. So here's a spoiler. This mirror is going to represent the Word of God. You could also look at it as the Christian, the true Christian life as expressed in the Word of God. So he thinks that he's attracted to the exterior, to these carvings. Now, the actual glass is covered in dust at the moment. Um, so maybe you're like Cosmo, and you think you're attracted to external Christianity, you know, more morality, kindness, generosity, that sort of stuff. All that is very appealing, and it is very biblical, but that is the external stuff. Um, but it's what's inside that has the real appeal, even if you don't recognize it yet. So something about this thing was drawing him. And maybe for you, something about Christianity draws you, and you don't quite know what it is. And you might think, oh, it's this morality stuff. But I'm telling you, morality without relationship with God is very cold and it gets you nowhere. So he leaves the shop, but he can't stop thinking about the mirror. So he goes back and he talks to the shopkeeper about it. And this is what it says. He pretended, however, to want it only for use, and saying he feared the plate could be of little service, as it was rather old. He brushed away a little of the dust from its face, expecting to see a dull reflection within. His surprise was great when he found the re reflection brilliant, revealing a glass not only uninjured by age, but wondrously clear and perfect, should the whole correspond to this part. Even for only one newly from the hands of the maker, he asked carelessly what the owner wanted for the thing, the old man replied by mentioning a sum of money far beyond the reach of poor Cosmo, who proceeded to replace the mirror where it had stood before. You think the price too high, said the old man. I do not know that it's too much for you to ask, replied Cosmo, but it is far too much for me to give. So this is kind of equivalent to, you could look at it two ways. One, of like maybe wanting a nice leather-bound Bible. You know, it looks nice on the outside. Um, you could also look at it as wanting the nice Christian life. You know, you're an upstanding citizen. If you're a politician, you're like, I, I, need, I need to be known as the church-going, baby-kissing fellow, right? So I, I got I to gotta make sure I got this Bible. I, I'm doing this stuff. I'm a nice person. Um, uh, but, you know, you open up the Bible, 
in the situation and you discover the immeasurable value of what's inside and the impossibility of actually obtaining it on our own. Because when you open the scripture, you actually realize that, oh, you're being called to something impossible. You can't do this on your own, but with relationship with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives you the strength and he allows you to do this. So it's, it's very mysterious. It's very powerful. The shopkeeper, anyway, he realizes uh, that he knows Cosmo's father he, and he decides to let him have the mirror for something he can afford on the condition that if he ever wants to get rid of the mirror again, the shopkeeper gets the first offer. Sold for the sixth time. I wonder what will be the upshot of it this time. I should think my lady had enough of it by now. Some cryptic thing the shopkeeper says. Cosmo is like crazy old man. He doesn't care what he's saying. He just leaves. Um, but here, the word of God, in, metaphorically uh, in this story, presents a challenge to love sacrificially. And that's what the guy's getting at. Because he knows this woman appears, and it gives an opportunity for the owner of the mirror to love sacrificially and the reward comes with a blessing, and it far outweighs the cost. But so many people who want to try the mirror, or try the Word of God, aren't willing to accept the challenge it brings. And uh, so he's like, I wonder if this guy here, who's interested in the Christian life, he's interested in the Christian externals, I wonder if he's willing to accept the challenge that comes with it, and then get the reward that comes when you accept it. So uh, he takes the mirror home. And he cleans it, and when he cleans it, something crazy happens. He says, he's like Spider-Man, he's always talking to himself. What a strange thing a mirror is, and what a wondrous affinity exists between it and a man's imagination. For this room of mine, as I behold it in the glass, is the same, and yet not the same. It is not the mere representation of the room I live in, but it looks just as if I were reading about it in a story I like. All its commonness had disappeared. The mirror has lifted it out of the region of fact into the realm of art, and the very representing of it to me has clothed with interest that which was otherwise hard and bare, just as one sees with delight upon the stage the representation of a character from which one would escape in life as from something unendurably wearisome. But... Is it not rather that art rescues nature from the weary and sated regards of our senses and the degrading injustice of our anxious everyday life and appealing to the imagination which dwells apart reveals nature in some degree as she really is and as she represents herself to the eye of a child whose everyday life, fearless and unambitious, meets the true import of the wonder-teeming world around it and rejoices therein without questioning? And then he's looking around, he sees a skeleton. He goes, that skeleton... Now I almost fear it, standing there so still, with eyes only for the unseen, like a watchtower looking across the waste of this busy world into the quiet regions of the rest beyond. And yet I know every bone and every joint in it, as well as I know my own fist, and that old battle axe over there, that looks as if any moment it might be caught up by a mailed hand and borne forth by the mighty arm, go crashing through some cask and skull and brain, invading the unknown with yet another bewildered ghost." I should like to live in that room if I could only get into it. You see, what he's saying here, if you're not catching it, he's saying with the word of God, you get the eyes of heaven. Without the eyes of heaven, this world is plain, it's dull, it's boring, there's no purpose. You get the eyes to heaven and suddenly everything comes to life. Suddenly some things seem darker than you thought they were and some things are just teeming with life. And he compares it to... Suddenly I see the world like I did when I was a kid. 
Suddenly I see the world with the faith of a child and everything is beauty and full of awe, but there's more, the, the eyes of heaven. Like you're going to see people for their value. You're going to see the sacrifice of Christ for the value that had. It's amazing the way you see it. Luke 24, 13 through 32 gives us a great example of what Cosmo experienced as he looked through the mirror. And Tony talked about this two weeks ago. This is the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They had dashed hopes. They were very confused. They are disciples, which means they decided to follow Jesus. They thought he was the Messiah. They thought correctly. But, you know, he died on the cross, and they're like, what's going on? Everything we thought was wrong. And so they're looking with the eyes of flesh, with just natural eyes. We're looking at the world, and the world looks chaotic. Their future looks bleak. Their hope is gone. They're in desperation. It's very confusing because they also have some stories, some rumors that maybe he had come back to life. So they just don't even know what's going on, but they're just seeing the world. And then Jesus appears to them. They don't know it's Jesus. And what does he do? He uses the scripture. He opens the scripture to them and suddenly they can see everything the way it was. Oh, I was doing this religion my whole life. And all generations before me were doing this religion, but I didn't realize until now that my eyes were opened by Jesus, that it was always about Jesus all along. And what I saw as bleak, what I saw as defeat, Jesus dying on the cross, was actually the greatest victory the universe had ever known. So you see everything's getting flipped around. They're seeing, and it says their hearts burned within them. And where they had no future, now they have future they're like, I was a disciple for no reason because the Messiah has died. And now they're like, the Messiah, he, all along it was foretold for thousands of years. He had to die and he would resurrect and I have a purpose. You guys have a purpose. And the scripture will open your eyes to the reality of heaven. And that purpose, by the way, is to walk in Jesus' steps and to live a life of sacrificial love. It was all part of the plan. So, 1 Peter 1, 23-25 says, uh, For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever but because it comes from the eternal living word of God. In Cosmos, we're all just that mirror. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the world Oh, sorry, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and that word is the good news that was preached to you. So, what this is saying, that when you get the word of God, your eyes are opened to see the truth of eternity. You see that, oh, all these little things that we worry about, this job and my schooling and whatever, these things will fade, and there's stuff we have to deal with, but this isn't primary. There's a whole load of eternal things out there called souls. Souls and, and the word of God, it lasts forever. And Jesus, he's going to be forever in glory. And he is already, and we're just not aware of it. And um, the scripture will open your eyes to this reality. And how is that going to change the way you live when you see the, your life as eternal, when you see other people's lives as eternal, when you think of the consequences of dying and, and heaven and hell and all that. How is this going to change the way you live your life? It's having this, the eyes of heaven through the scripture will change the way you live. So 
Um, also, so God looks at this sinner in the scripture named Jeshua, and he was a priest, and he was a terrible priest, uh, and Satan knew it. And this is, you can read this in the book of Zechariah. And I love talking about it. It's one of my favorite parts in all of Scripture. And uh, so there's this vision that Zechariah is heaven, having, and uh, Satan is there, and God's there, and the priest is there, and he's in filthy clothes. And uh, he, is, you know, he earned the filthy clothes because he is a sinner. He's a really a loser. Um, and Satan is like, sinner! And Jesus is like, uh, no. No, minister, man of God, priest of the kingdom of heaven. And uh, I don't know if he said it with a Pentecostal voice like that, but uh, <laughs> anyway, like righteous, redeemed, forgiven, chosen, this is how I see you. And so Zechariah, who's in this vision, he now catches the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is not sinner, righteous, forgiven, chosen. And so then he now sees him differently. And he says, yeah, because Jesus is like, take off those dirty clothes, give him white, pure clothes. And Zechariah says, yes, and give him a new white, clean turban too. And so he's like caught the vision and sees the value in the sinner. So the eyes of heaven, uh, Jesus looked at Peter who denied Christ and saw a devout and powerful minister. He looked at Saul, the murderer of Christians, and saw a great missionary and disciple. The word of God gives us the eyes of heaven it is impossible to fulfill our biblical mission of sacrificial love without those eyes. So perhaps you will see things, like we talked about the axe um, uh, and the skeleton, perhaps you will see things that once seemed innocent in your life, uh, things that uh, now seem grotesque to you, and you're done with. That's what happens. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's seeing with the eyes of heaven. This thing I thought was innocent. I thought I could go about my life doing this, but suddenly it becomes grotesque to you. And maybe, maybe if you're not there yet, you feel addicted to your sin. Well, again, plug into the love of God. Open the scripture. You're going to be transformed. You're going to start to hate the stuff, I promise you. Look, um, we all are addicted to stuff that kills us, and it's terrible. It's, it's part of the sin nature. And so let's not get all big on when it's obvious in somebody else because it's in you too and it's in me. But this is the key to solving it. Get the eyes of heaven and we will begin to see these things as grotesque. And you're going to see other things as beautiful that you might have saw as grotesque before. So anyway, Cosmos sees the other world through the mirror and he wants to be in that world. And then suddenly a beautiful maiden slips into the room but only in the reflection. He can't take his eyes off her. She doesn't seem to be aware of him. She lays down on his couch, and it says, By and by, her eyes fell upon the skeleton, and he saw her shudder and close them. She did not open them again, but signs of repugnance continued evident on her countenance. Cosmo would have removed the obnoxious thing at once, but he feared to discompose her yet more by the assertion of his presence, which the act would involve. So the love of Jesus, which causes us to conform our hearts hearts to his, um, is experienced, and we begin to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on. Um, so she falls asleep in a sad face. He doesn't know what's upsetting her besides the, the skeleton. There's something else that's bothering her. He doesn't know what it is. Um, uh, and then she, like, later she, she takes a nap, she wakes up, and she leaves. But when she does, the majesty of the mirror world is gone. And then he realizes the real beauty of Scripture all along wasn't in the words, but in the relationship with a person. 
Now that Cosmo has encountered the person, he realizes that all the majesty of the reflected world was wrapped up in her. So what does this, what does he do after this encounter? What do we do after having an encounter with the Lord through the word? He begins to adjust his house to please her in case she comes back. He's like, she was looking at that skeleton. Uh, she didn't look very comfortable with that skeleton being there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go hide that skeleton. I'm going to go move these things around. And so that's right. That's what we do. That's the Christian life, getting the eyes of heaven, seeing what bothers Jesus and go rearranging our house. It's time to call Chip and Joanna Gaines for our soul. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Um, also, when you start changing the inside, the outside's going to change too. And that is shown in this story as well. So in the story, she does come back. Every night, it's like the same thing. She comes in. She like appraises the changes. She loves the changes. She takes a nap. She wakes and she leaves. And uh, she's very excited about the changes, which compels him to make more changes. But the only way that he can make more changes, remember, he's addicted to um, priding himself on his own poverty. He now has to break uh, this like lifestyle he created for himself of being this weird recluse guy. Um, well, I'll show, you. I'll show you what he does. He, he goes out and becomes very uncosmo-like because of what's happening inside of him. It says, yet he possessed accomplishments that could be turned to account, meaning he can make money, um, although hitherto he had preferred living on a slender allowance to increase his means by what his pride considered unworthy of his rank. He was the best swordsman in the university, and now he offered to give lessons in fencing and similar exercises to such as chose to pay him well for the trouble. His proposal was heard with surprise by the students, but it was eagerly accepted by many, and soon his instructions were not confined to the richer students, but were anxiously sought by many of the young nobility of Prague and its neighborhood. So love was conquering his pride, and he was becoming a benefit to his society. He was getting out there. He was making a positive change in the world because of what's going on inside. He got the eyes opened by the word. He's in love, and now he's changing his life. He's changing his internal life, and it's causing his external life to look a lot differently. Um, meanwhile, it says, how fared Cosmo, as might be expected in one of his temperament, uh, his interested had blossomed into, and his love, shall I call it, ripened or withered into passion. But alas, he loved a shadow. He could not come near her, could not speak to her, could not hear a sound from those sweet lips to which his longing eyes would cling like bees to their honey founts. Ever and anon, he sang to himself, I shall die for the love of the maiden. So in Christian terms, he was experiencing the love of Christ in a fashion, but had not yet had a face-to-face -face encounter, nor had he made any sort of commitment. And we can all get there in our Christianity, or so-called Christianity, where we really like what's going on at church. We begin to have some sort of experiences with him. We really begin to like this guy, Jesus, but we haven't had a personal face-to-face -face encounter, and we're not ready to you know, pull the trigger and make a commitment. And that's where he is in this story. Um, now, to be fair to the author, it's possible that this girl doesn't necessarily represent Jesus or, or always represents her. It's possible that she represents other people that we are given the opportunity and power to love by seeing them through the eyes of heaven. Actually, he may be going so deep as to say that she represents both Jesus and other people because Jesus says the same thing. Um, it says, Jesus says, 
Um, I have it later here. Well, maybe we'll get to it. Maybe we won't. But if you remember the story, Jesus is like, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. And they're like, when did we ever do that? And he's like, um, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. Amen. So here is uh, maybe a justification for why this, this woman in this character could be both Jesus and other people, because there's no difference, like uh, in, in the sense of pouring out sacrificial love. Um, let's see. So at this point, he's seeking, he's interested, he's hungry, and he's changing. But, and it says this, is not this all that a loving soul can do to enter into communion with another? Nay, how many who love never come nearer than to behold each other as in a mirror, seem to know and yet never know the inward life, never enter the other soul and part at last with but the vaguest notion of the universe on the borders of which they have been hovering for years. It could be or if I could but speak to her and knew that she heard me, I should be satisfied. So he's recognizing there's more to the Christian life. Like there has to be more than just the external. I feel it. There's something there. What do I do? He's longing. So then one evening, she comes in totally dressed to impress, sparkly white dress. She's really done up, um, jewels shimmer, all this stuff. He still thinks that she is unaware of him, but he doesn't realize that she dressed up for him. Um, and then when he doesn't respond with an act of commitment of true love, somehow trying to find a way to draw her into his world, she's devastated. She begins to cry and she leaves the room never to appear in a mirror again. And it says, and now he fell really ill, rallied by his fellow students on his wretched looks. He ceased to attend the lectures. His engagements were neglected. He cared for nothing. The sky with the great sun in it was to him a heartless burning desert. The men and women in the streets were mere puppets without motives in themselves or interest to him. You see, losing connection with God because of your own refusal to commit will always have this effect. Maybe you've experienced it if you've been in Christian circles long enough and you went through various stages of trying to find God. Maybe you got real close and weren't willing to commit. What happens next in your life? Boy, everything starts to look bleak. It starts to look bleak. It even says in the Bible, it's better if you never knew me than to like sort of know me, or whatever the scripture says. I, don't, I didn't put it in my notes. I should have looked it up. But anyway, so this is what happens. It becomes bleak because he didn't commit. See, God has this amazing life for us if we would step into it. And so he missed his opportunity, and I am 100% sure that George MacDonald was inspired by Song of Solomon 5, 2 through 6, which says this, I slept, but my heart was awake. When I heard my lover knocking and calling, open to me my treasure, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. But I responded, I have taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I have washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? My lover tried to unlatch the door and my heart thrilled within me. I jumped up to open the door for my love. My hands were dripped with perfume. My fingers dripped with lovely myrrh as I pulled back the bolt. I opened to my lover, but he was gone. My heart sank deeply. I searched for him, but I could not find him anywhere. I called to him, but there was no reply. So I think, I think this is what he's getting at. You know, he gives you opportunities, and then you don't take them. You gotta, you're going to have to dig a little bit harder to find him now. Where is he? So desperate for the woman, Cosmo resorts to religion, so to speak. He takes out the magic books and looks for some sort of spell to bring her to him. And isn't that what man's idea of religion is? Doing works, saying prayers like incantations, trying to bring God near us. 
Man's idea of religion is selfish. I will use my strength to get God's blessing for me. God's idea of religion is sacrificial love for people. James 1, 27 says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows and their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So here's what it says about in the story. He cleared the center of the room, stooped and drew a circle of red on the floor around the spot where he stood, wrote in the four quarters, mystical signs and numbers, which were all powers of seven or nine, examined the whole ring carefully to see that no smallest break occurred in the circumference, and then rose from his bending posture. He rose, the, uh, as he rose, the church clock struck seven, and just as she had appeared the first time, reluctant, slow, and stately, glided in the lady. Cosmo trembled, and when turning, she revealed a countenance worn and wan, as with sickness or inward trouble, he grew faint and felt as if he dared not proceed. So she actually enters into the room, for real. A moment after she entered his room with veritable presence and forgetting all his precautions, he sprang from the charmed circle and knelt before her. There she stood, the living lady of his passionate visions, alone beside him in a thundery twilight and the glow of magic fire. Why, said the lady with a trembling voice, didst thou bring a poor maiden through the rainy streets alone? Because I am dying for love of thee, but I only brought thee from the mirror there. Ah, the mirror. And she looked upon it and shuddered. Alas, I am but a slave while the mirror exists. But do not think it was the power of thy spells that drew me. It was thy longing desire to see me that beat at the door of my heart till I was forced to yield. So here he has another encounter, this time in person, but not because of religion or witchcraft, but because of longing. As we said, if you seek, you're going to find. Keep seeking. But yet she's a slave. There's a veil that separates God from man and from Cosmo and the woman, and um, religion cannot tear that veil. She burst into tears and kneeling before him in her turn said, Cosmo, if thou lovest me, set me free, even from thyself, break the mirror. And shall I see thyself instead? That I cannot tell. I do not deceive thee. We may never meet again. A fierce struggle arose in Cosmo's bosom. Now she was in his power. She did not dislike him at least, and he could see her when he would. To break the mirror would be to destroy his very life, to banish out of his universe the only glory it possessed. The whole world would be open, I mean, would be but a prison if he annihilated the one window that looked into the paradise of love, yet, and this is, it says this, not yet pure in love, he hesitated. Not yet pure in love. Not yet pure in love. He doesn't even know he's not yet pure in love. He thinks he is. With a wail of sorrow, the lady rose to her feet. Ah, oh, he loves me not. He loves me not, even as I love him. And alas, I care more for his love than even for the freedom I ask. I will not wait to be willing, cried Cosmo. Then he sprang to the corner uh, where the great sword stood. He took the sword. It was too late. There's a terrible thunderclap, and they all disappear, except for Cosmo. He concluded that either by supernatural agency, he, having exposed himself to the vengeance of the demons and leaving the circle of safety, or in some other mode, the mirror had probably found its way back to its former owner, and horrible to think of, might have been by this time once more disposed of, delivering up the lady into the power of another man, who if he, refu if he used his powers no worse than he himself had done, might yet give Cosmo abundant cause to curse the selfish indecision which prevented him from shattering the mirror. Now he gets what the shop owner said in the beginning, which is, let's see what happens. Are you going to take up the challenge to love or not? And now that it's gone, he was like, I did not love. 
I thought I loved. I thought I didn't break the mirror because I loved, but now I see I do not love, and I hope that whoever gets this mirror next, that they're going to love, but I doubt they will. And, and so now he's torn. At, um, 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says that love is not self-seeking, which is what he's finally realizing. Matthew 20, 26 to 28 says this, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's, that's the love we're called to. Now, knowing what love is, what does he do? It says this, He never went out without a short, heavy hammer of steel about him, that he might shatter the mirror the moment he was made happy by the sight of his lost treasure, if ever that blessed moment should arrive. Like I said, it's possible she represents others and Jesus together, um, but, and a true believer will do whatever it takes to relieve the person who struggles. I think that's what it's saying here. A true believer is going to do whatever it takes to relieve a person that is under whatever the, some sort of conflict, like we have the Isaiah 61 anointing. Jesus is in us, and he is the hope of glory for this world. Matthew 25, 37 through 40 says, then the righteous will answer. Oh, yeah, that's that part. Like, I was hungry, and, and you fed me. Like, the least of these, sacrificial love. Make the commitment. So Cosmo learns two things at this moment. One, the girl is real. She's also a princess. He finds out over the course of the next couple of weeks. But she's very sick. And she spends much of her life unconscious, and he knows that when she's unconscious, she's stuck in the mirror. The second thing he learns is that an old classmate named Steinwald, who is very good at fencing, now has the mirror. So he enters his home, and we don't actually see what happens there, but it's very obvious, because the princess awakes totally healthy and goes running through the city to find Cosmo. As she runs over a bridge, this happens. Are you free, my lady? The mirror is broken. Are you free? The words were spoken close beside her as she hurried on. She turned, and there, leaning on the parapet in a recess of the bridge, stood Cosmo in a splendid dress, but with a white and quivering face. Cosmo, I am free, and thy servant forever. I was coming to you now, and I to you, for death made me bold, but I could get no further. Have I atoned at all? Do I love you a little truly? Ah, I know now that you love me, my Cosmo, but what say you about death? He did not reply. His hand was pressed against his side. She looked more closely. The blood was welling from between the fingers. She flung her arms around him with a faint, bitter wail. And then her attendant, Lisa, came up. She found her mistress kneeling above a dead wan face, which smiled on in the spectral moonbeams. That's actually where the story ends. Pretty uh, sad. But um, the only reason the story ends there, because the parable is, making, is based on human love, and, you know, humans die, and then that's, that's the end for the flesh until Jesus comes back and there's a resurrection. But we understand that in, in Christianity, there's more in, in, in real life, beyond the parable, in real life, there's eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, 19-21, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And this is our hope. Right here at the end, I got one last sentence. But we, how is this going to change? Like, we get the eyes of heaven. We get sacrificial love. We realize how much we're loved. We then become to love others. And we are then able to, like, give ourselves up and it's so much easier because we know that it's not the end for us. 
In our story, Cosmo wakes up and gets to hang out with the girl more. In our story, we might die as we give up our lives for somebody else, but we live forever with those people that we're dying for, hopefully, with Jesus who loved us greatly. So we should be even more encouraged to go out and do this thing, to experience what true love is. We're just going to go back and end with the verse we read there at the beginning, Ephesians 5, 31-32. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united in one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. True love is that which will sacrifice itself for other people around. And uh, Actually, one last thing I do want to say. I told some people about this, but... So the Chosen um, show, they just released a little documentary called um, uh, Gen Z Reacts or Responds or something to The Chosen. And so they get these people with different backgrounds. One was sexually molested in a church. Uh, a couple of them are gay. You know, one's a thug, whatever. They get these young 20-something-year-olds, and they, they watch The Chosen, and, and they just see the life of Jesus because, you know, they're not hanging out in church. They don't hear all this stuff, but they see, they see the love of Jesus in this show and these documentary makers, they don't, even, they don't even push. They just want them to, to see the love of Jesus in this show. And man, by the end, they're all wrecked and they're searching for God in some way. And they, they didn't all make the commitments yet. And as I'm watching it, my heart is just growing in love for these people. And I realize that, I mean, some of these people, our religion and stuff, will say, you know, don't, don't go to... These people need to know that they're in sin, is what our religion will tell us. But sacrificial love, as I was beginning to feel in my own heart watching this documentary for them, and as the creators of this documentary were doing, it's first they need to know Jesus. They need to know the identity of Jesus. He'll work the stuff out. And you have plenty of time to share the truth with them once they're willing to grab hold of the meaning of life, which is Jesus. And how many of us still have sin in our lives after grabbing hold of Jesus? It's a process. He works through us. But... That's it. We go out and we love sacrificially. And so 